in a world that's constantly, continuously being made up around us by think pieces, hot takes, viral memes, and yes, pithy podcasts. <laughs> it's not easy to draw our own line between crafting a story that's truly alive or a story that's just effective. Welcome to The Inspirited Word, the podcast for visionary writers ready to stop second-guessing their storytelling and ready to start breathing life and spirit back into their craft. I'm writer and editor Mary Lanham, and I'll be your host and fellow seeker as we rediscover the true power of our work, our words, and maybe even ourselves. Hey, writer friends, and thanks for joining in for this month's episode of The Inspirited Word. I hope you're doing well wherever and whenever you're listening. I want to start today with a note about what I mean when I'm talking about storytelling on this podcast. When I've talked about craft in these first few episodes, I've mostly been framing it with turns from fiction, just because that's where a lot of my own writing and editing work falls. But since the start of the show, I've heard from a couple listeners who write nonfiction, and I realized I haven't yet unpacked how storytelling connects with nonfiction work, at least in my viewpoint. So it'd be understandable to feel like I'm really talking to fiction writers in this space, and nonfiction folks are just sort of like hanging out, listening in from the edge of the circle. But at least as I see it, nonfiction writing is storytelling, just as much as fiction writing is. The Venn diagram of nonfiction and storytelling is actually just a circle, or I guess the storytelling would be one huge circle, and then both nonfiction and fiction would be firmly inside of it, and also probably overlapping a bit. Storytelling is often seen as synonymous with making stuff up, as in making up things that aren't factual. But I find it more useful and honestly accurate to think of storytelling as the conscious crafting of narratives. Narratives that can be factual, imagined, or some combination of both. Anytime you string together your knowledge, insights, experiences, and intuitions into a narrative, you're telling a story. You're making stuff up in the sense of making a narrative that didn't exist in that form until you created it, even if you're working from fact. It's maybe easiest to see this at work in genres like memoir or the personal essay, the writer is crafting a storyline out of their lived experience, a storyline that they're also then presenting as an immersive narrative for an audience. But other kinds of less quote-unquote creative nonfiction are storytelling too. Anytime you're writing something and face a decision about what to include or how you want to include it, that decision and the way you implement it are an act of storytelling. You're intentionally opening one door and closing, or at least omitting, another one. You're creating a path for your reader, and that path is your consciously crafted narrative, even if the path is made up out of facts or fact-based opinions and theories. So in this sense, this very broad sense, all writing, no matter the context or the genre or the intent, could be called storytelling. I guess maybe writing a scientific paper might not be storytelling, at least if you're doing it right, but I'm not entirely convinced it's not. 
I honestly don't have a deep enough background in any hard sciences to have an opinion there, or at least not one that I should be sharing all over the internet. <laughs> Social sciences, though, definitely storytelling. Obviously, some forms of writing have way more of that crafting and constructing involved than others in terms of imagining things that aren't factual. So fiction genres have a way more overtly story-like quality or presence to them. But that doesn't make other genres not storytelling, including poetry, although I have yet to hear from any poets who might be listening. So if that's you, let me know. Uh, you can send me a haiku through the contact form on the website, or you can join the newsletter circle. Anyway, all this is to say that if you're a nonfiction storyteller, you are welcome here. And you don't need to feel like you walked into the wrong club meeting, but just can't figure out how to gracefully leave, uh, which is definitely not how I once ended up joining the wrong volunteer group for three years. Just me? Anybody? <laughs> For my part, I will work on making my craft references more overtly multi-genre on the occasions when specific stuff like structure or narrative arcs comes up. Now that I've explained a bit more fully what I think storytelling is, and just how wide that definition is, it shouldn't be too surprising that I also think storytelling is everywhere. And if pretty much everything you read or watch or listen to is a story, factual or otherwise, <laughs> then an awful lot of what we consider to be our objective reality is actually created by storytelling, our own or somebody else's. Stories might not be tangible, but in a very real way, our lives are fully embedded within the stories that surround us or that we choose to surround ourselves with. This is part of what can make storytelling such a beautiful vocation. A storyteller is someone who wants to engage actively and reciprocally with the narratives making up their world. That is some powerful stuff. But it's not always beautiful stuff. Stories can do harm, especially when they wear the skin of a factual story, but have guts made of nightmares and dogmatic delusion. That kind of story makes a world where the narrative paths are all just rabbit holes of doom that dead end at Pizzagate. I'm pretty obviously talking about U.S. politics here, which I don't think I need to belabor lest this episode take a descent into a tangent so deep and yawning that we will never get out the other side. But I'm also talking about less obvious nightmare narratives, and even unconscious ones. I've talked in previous episodes about some of the shitty stories we might be telling ourselves that have the face of fact, but are actually self-defeating fictions right through to the bone. All of this makes being a storyteller a doubly powerful calling. Not only do storytellers consciously craft narratives, we're also uniquely positioned to learn how to spot them around us in the world. That very convincing article everyone's sharing on your virtual feed of choice? It's a story. The writer literally made it up, no matter how factual it may or may not be. And more importantly, no matter how factual it may appear to be. That embarrassing memory you keep replaying every time a certain song shuffles onto your playlist. You know, the one that makes you feel like a nesting doll full of increasingly stupid dolls the further down you get? <laughs> that memory is a story. It did really happen, and also, you're continually making it up and retelling it to yourself. This podcast is a story. I am making up everything I'm saying to you right now, although I'm doing my best to make the guts of this story nightmare-free. Understanding how stories make up the world, 
how stories are crafted and how we are in relationship with them, that's the life's work of the storyteller. It's our superpower. And it gives us the ability and the responsibility to make up things of truth instead of things of oppression or occlusion. This brings me into the more concrete part of this episode. How are stories of truth made up? I said this is the more concrete part, not the very concrete part. (laughs) How do we mix fact and fiction and experience and insight into a powerful living story? I often see two opposing bits of writing advice on this, depending on the type of story you're working on. If you're writing genre or mainstream fiction, or if you're writing nonfiction for a mainstream audience, you're probably going to hear this. Your story should have a message, and every single section or scene of your story should reinforce that message. On the other hand, if you're writing in a quote-unquote literary style, you're probably going to hear the opposite advice. You must avoid any kind of overt message and think primarily about the aesthetic shape and the value of the story. By defining a clear message, you're just going to end up stripping all of the nuance out, and that's where the real meaning is. I'm going to dig into both of these arguments a little, starting with the mainstream storytelling angle. On the surface, it looks like pretty good advice to craft your story around a message when you're writing non-literary stories. Brief but important sidebar here on the topic of types of stories. (laughs) The distinction between literary writing and other styles is honestly slippery at best, and unpacking all of the cultural baggage and, frankly, bullshit around it could be its own multi-season podcast, (laughs) but I'm going to sum it up like this. Literary writing is more about the words on the page, the style and tone and timbre of the storyteller's language. Mainstream writing and genre fiction is more about what happens in the narrative, the who, the what, and the how. To put it another way, if a literary story has a kind of crappy plot, it can still be a successful story, if the language is really lovely or moving or unique. It might not be the greatest literary story without a good plot, but it will still be ticking the most important boxes. On the other hand, if a mainstream or genre story is packed with really clunky sentences, it can still be a successful story if it's a page-turner. And just one last note here, mainstream writing also goes by other names like commercial or general audience. Basically, if it's not literary, but it doesn't fit into a clear bucket like mystery, romance, or sci-fi, it's usually called mainstream. And like I said, this is my attempt to very quickly sum up a subjective and complex and sometimes emotionally charged topic just to give us some context. So please don't at me, or at least not about this. So getting back to the question of should your story have a message? When you're writing a non-literary story, it does sound pretty logical to write toward a message, since the story is most concerned with the who, the what, and the how. Focusing those aspects on a clear, singular theme can be a useful way to make decisions about what should happen and how to convey it, so that you end up with a cohesive and compelling read. The message basically becomes the why to go with the who, what, and how. I often see fellow editors and writing coaches advising something like this. To write a story readers will really love, you need to write with a specific takeaway in mind. 
Readers want to learn something from your story, and they learn that takeaway through the way the characters change over the course of the plot. So for example, if you want to craft a really compelling fictional love story, you should first come up with a message about love. Something like, love is a strength, not a weakness. Then each scene in the story should somehow tie into how your characters evolve from thinking that love is a weakness to understanding that it's a strength. That way, you create a satisfying arc that leaves readers with a clear idea of the point of your story. And other people's advice, I'm now talking for myself again. <laughs> this approach can and does help writers put together really functional stories. I've worked on stories for both individual authors and for publishers that were planned out exactly that way, and it can help make a story really cohesive and engaging. It's a very useful tool. But here's the thing. I don't think readers actually love stories because they enjoy learning concise, clear takeaways about the world or the human condition. A story that somebody loves might have one of those, sure, but that's not why they have a powerful relationship with that story. I mean, when was the last time somebody recommended a story to you by saying, oh yeah, it's my favorite book. It really illustrates the theme that love is a strength and not a weakness. Having a clear and concise message does make it easier to work successfully with all of the complex moving parts of a story. And there's nothing wrong with using a message that way in your writing process. Sometimes you need a really clear conceptual anchor to actually transform your draft from just a pile of maybes into an actually finished draft. This applies to creative nonfiction just as much as it does to fiction. Obviously, there are some types of nonfiction where having a message is sort of baked into the concept, but in any type of creative nonfiction work, you're facing very similar choices as you would with fiction. The characters and events in your story just also happen to be real. So a predetermined message can still help you make those choices about what to tell and how to tell it. But even though a message makes a story easier to write, I don't think it's what makes a story easy to love. Okay, so then what about the stereotypical literary take on messages and storytelling? If you studied craft from the literary angle, you've probably heard the exact opposite advice. Predetermined, clear messages may have worked well for some of the classics, but they aren't done anymore in serious writing. Or, honestly, if you're a literary writer, you may have heard nothing about messages and storytelling at all. I mean, what's next? Talking about outlines? God forbid. Let's just keep endlessly workshopping this contemporary Dadaist flash fiction. I'm realizing that it's, uh, it's sounding kind of like I'm dumping a full cooler of haterade on literary writing in this episode, uh, but I promise I'm genuinely not anti-literary. It's the genre that I have the most formal training in, and some of my best friends are literary books. In literary writing, the major impact is supposed to come from the overall gestalt of the language, the artistry of the words themselves. So rather than focusing, first of all, on putting together driving or persuasive plots, writers are usually encouraged to focus primarily on developing their style or their artistic voice as a writer. Yes, plot does matter in literary fiction, but the deeper meaning and life of the story is described not through things like messages or takeaways, but through things like having a fresh voice. 
Just as with the mainstream writing argument, I think the literary approach has its merits, but it doesn't really capture what's so powerful about reading a story we really love, a story that we encounter as a beloved, as I described it in earlier episodes. We don't enter into relationship with a fresh voice any more than we do with a clear takeaway. Both of these takes are honestly sort of missing the point. To come at this from a third direction, I've got another book reference this month from a book that is not really about writing, Non-Things, by cultural philosopher Byung-Chul Han. I think I need a subtitle for this podcast that's just how to make everything you read ever actually be about writing. <laughs> uh, you might also see this book with its original German title, Undiga. Um which may or may not be pronounced the way I just said it because I forgot to look it up before sitting down to record. <laughs> so I'll include the spelling in the episode resources. A lot of Han's work is about the loss of grounding cultural narratives in the internet era. And he has a way of talking about stories that highlights this question of what actually makes a story deeply powerful. The kind of story that you can be in right relationship with, to bring back a phrase from episode two of this pod. He describes this kind of writing as linguistic works of art, as opposed to writing that isn't art, <laughs> which is something I will circle back around to in a minute. For Han, an artful story is one that has, quote, the character of a thing, by which he means something the reader can encounter and engage with beyond just taking in the information or the stylistic elements that are on the page. He writes that this type of story, quote, resists the kind of reading that consumes sense and emotion, and instead lingers with the text as a body, as a thing. Talking about poetry, he says that this kind of reading, quote, snuggles up to the skin of the poem. It enjoys the poem's body. According to Han, most storytelling in the digital and the internet age doesn't get anywhere close to having that kind of relational, living character of a body. And I would tend to agree with him. I mean, the, the digital world is about conveying things quickly and emphatically. You're always competing for the brief attention of readers who have been more and more trained that stories come in clips and in sound bites. And even more than that, we've been trained that what's highly relevant right now will be replaced by something else within weeks, days, hours, or even minutes. Earlier in this episode, I proposed that the vocation of the storyteller is to consciously craft narratives of truth. Not universal truth, as I don't think that's really a thing, and often what's called universal truth is really just dogma in disguise. But we're aiming for truth of some real kind, truth with a body you can snuggle up to. According to Han, digital-era storytelling literally has no time for truth. Instead of conveying stories of truth, digital age storytelling conveys quickly consumable information, which may or may not be factual. Han says, quote, what counts is short-term effect. Effectiveness replaces truth. He's specifically talking about fake news there with that quote, but this also applies to a kind of writing that I mentioned back in episode two. The kind of writing that focuses on using craft techniques to evoke a very effective, but ultimately empty or ephemeral emotional response. It's the kind of writing that wants to push your buttons and watch you react instead of having a real conversation with you. This kind of writing isn't always malicious or harmful the way fake news is, 
But it's also not the kind of writing that creates a presence you can be in right relationship with, a body you can linger with. Han argues that this kind of storytelling has become ubiquitous in the digital era, even in the realms of art. He says, What is problematic about today's art is its inclination to communicate a preconceived opinion, a moral or political conviction. That is, its inclination to communicate information. So in other words, Byung-Chul Han really doesn't think we should be writing stories with a message. I have to mention here, though, that I suspect Han doesn't think anything except the peak of the literary genre could be considered art or a narrative of truth. I haven't read all of his work, so I could be wrong, but he seems pretty down on novels in general in this book, and he only mentions really good literary non-representational poetry as an example of storytelling with the deep character of a thing or a body. My take is exponentially less rarefied. I think pretty much any genre of story can be art. And honestly, I don't even like using the benchmark of art to evaluate the amount of truth or power or enlivened presence that a story has. I think that framework is, is just too loaded to be useful. And it doesn't line up with the relationships that we actually have with stories. I've experienced that encounter of lingering presence with plenty of beloved stories that would not be described as art in a cultural philosophy book. Those stories have the thing-like aspect of a living body that Han describes, at least for me. And I've read plenty of artistic and poetic language that lacks that presence, that actually falls into his category of short-term effect. Sometimes art is all artifice, nobody. And a poem can push your buttons and then walk away just as much as a novel can. So I disagree with this idea that a poetic, non-representative writing style is what transforms writing into a thing. And I disagree with his implied statement that only an actual poem can reach that level of presence. But Han does really capture the tension I think many storytellers feel in this current era, that tension between the way stories are functioning in the world around us and the stories that we would actually like to tell. As I said earlier, our lives are embedded in the stories that surround us. We see that in this world, the vast majority of stories are crafted to deploy information to provoke an effective response. And in a world that's constantly, continuously being made up around us by think pieces, hot takes, viral memes, and yes, pithy podcasts, <laughs> it's not always easy to see the line between a story that's a body and a story that's just wearing a skin, a story made up of manipulation or style without any truth. It's not easy to draw our own line between crafting a story that's truly alive or a story that's just effective. To start divining the shape of that line for ourselves and where we want to place it in terms of our own writing work, I think we have to start paying close attention to the way we respond to the stories around us. We're so inundated with storytelling that we've learned to consume it, respond, and move on, often without even registering what's really happening. We're being trained more and more to erode that storyteller's superpower, our ability to really see and understand the way stories are making up our world. The first step to honing that power again is to take active note of our responses when we cross paths with a story. And I mean that literally by making notes. <laughs> 
This doesn't have to be elaborate and it doesn't have to be comprehensive. Otherwise, you'd be taking notes all day. Just try making one or two notes a day about a story you interacted with, what kind of story it was, and how you responded. And remember that I'm not just talking about actual books or literature here. Any media that you took particular notice of during the day is fair game for this exercise. Be as brief or as detailed as you like or as you're able to be. You just need to gather enough examples to start picking up on some patterns. When you have a strong reaction to something, what kind of story is it? And what kind of reaction did you have? Was it a deep encounter of presence and truth? Or was it one of those effective short-term responses? And here's the really toothsome question. What specifically about the way that story is crafted led to your reaction? Once you get into the habit of taking active note of your interactions with stories, it's incredibly helpful to start doing deeper analytical dives with any story in your own writing genre that you have a particularly strong reaction to, and that can be either a positive or a negative reaction. Figuring out what kinds of stories you don't want to tell is a key part of deciding which stories you do want to tell. Even we writers tend to just decide that we like or dislike a story without actually asking ourselves to identify and articulate why specifically we feel that way. Learning to always ask yourself why and remembering to keep track of the answer somehow is the best training for becoming the writer you want to be. Seriously, this is one of the most valuable teachings I have ever received about being a storyteller. And even though it sounds so simple as to almost be silly, it's also so easy not to do it. Making this episode has actually reminded me that I need to get a lot better at the keeping track of the answers bit. <laughs> if you want a supportive push to actually implement this advice during the next month and beyond, scroll down on your phone right now to join the newsletter circle at the link in the show notes right now in this very moment. Subscribers get practical tips to go along with the pod episode each month, and this time I'm going to be sharing a simple worksheet to help you identify what's going on craft-wise when you have a big reaction to a story. And this worksheet will help you actually write that shit down somewhere. This kind of habitual and intentional taking note, both literally and figuratively, is what really cultivates and honors our vocation as storytellers to engage actively and reciprocally with the narratives that make up the world. It's also the only real way each of us can answer questions like, should my story have a message? I can't really answer that for you any more than I could create your story for you. Instead, I think we each have to ask ourselves, what stories do I most love? How do their bodies linger with mine? And why? If you know a fellow storyteller who might enjoy this episode of The Inspirited Word, please text or email it to them, or DM it, or tweet it, or mastodon toot it, or whatever verb applies when you're out in the swiftly changing digital world taking note of stories. And as always, keep well, keep writing, and I will see you in the next episode. Brief but important sidebard here. Eh, sidebard. Sidebard. It's a bard that rides in a sidecar.